Father, we bless you. We thank you for your love, Lord. We give you praise for your love, for loving us, Lord. Thank you, Father, for loving us, Lord. We bless you. Thank you that we're loved by you, Lord. Hallelujah. When you, get, when you begin to get a revelation of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, it, it will undo you. It will overwhelm you. Hallelujah. I think a couple of folks are getting it this morning. How about you? Glory. Hallelujah. Turn around and shake somebody's hand. Welcome them to Grace Point Church. Don't sit down. I just told you to shake their hand. Introduce yourself to them. Welcome them to the house of the Lord. Glory. Glory. Man, I feel something in here this morning. <laughs> Let me say it another way. I feel somebody in here this morning. Glory. Hallelujah. You know, when uh, really this is a series, I'm just kind of, it doesn't matter to me about all the, the names, but every Sunday's a series. Last Sunday, I preached on the audacity of the grace of God. And when you preach on the audacity of the grace of God, as I did and do often, some will misinterpret your message as an endorsement of sin, that sin doesn't matter, it's not a big deal. And that's a guaranteed thing. When I was young in the ministry and just started preaching, I used to read great men that would make this statement. Many different ones have made it. Um, and they would say that when you truly preach the grace of God as the Apostle Paul preached it, the same thing that happened to him will happen to those preachers. They will be accused of seemingly saying that sin's not a big deal. Why don't we just sin all the more? They did that to Paul often in the book of Romans, and he would respond in the King James, he says, God forbid. In the New King James, he says, certainly not. Shall we sin the more that grace may abound? And so unless we're being misunderstood and misrepresented by what we preach on the grace of God, we're not preaching the same message that Paul preached. Because when you preach what Paul the apostle preached, the revelation that he received from the Lord himself about God's grace, who was personified in the person of Jesus Christ, now, Jesus preached the law to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Galatians said he was born, Jesus, under the law to redeem those that were under the law. But how Jesus handled and dealt with people was with grace. John 1.17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I'm glad grace came and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Grace is not some theological teaching. It is a person. The first time the word grace appears in the Bible, it is personified. It's a person. The first time the word grace appears is in the book of Genesis. And it says Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has eyes because grace is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Healer. I better quit. I can just go on and on. But there are those who dismiss grace as a license to sin. But the very fact that they would dismiss grace as a license to sin shows their ignorance of it. How can the medicine that God sent to kill the disease, which is his grace, actually feed the disease called sin? Did God send the wrong thing? Are we still missing something, lacking something? Are we still waiting? Is it like John the Baptist said, peering out of the cell of a prison, go ask him, art thou he that should come, or do we seek another? Is God going to send something else than he's already sent? Or was Jesus enough? When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, did he really finish it? Did he finish it? Did he pay the price in full? Did he do it all that was needed to be done? Amen? So today I'm in detailing this God's grace and the concept of sin. And what is sin? That's the big idea, the big question today. And I know you might be thinking, well, what is sin? We all know what sin is. I don't believe the church even knows what sin is. You would think all the preaching that we've all, if you grew up in church, most of the churches that you and I grew up in, they preached against sin. Sometimes they would name what sin is. I remember growing up in the holiness church, and they said going to the movies was sin. I sin often now because I like going to the movies. It's not going to the movies is not sin. You know, what got quiet there? Some of y'all were raised like I was. You're still in there. I remember hearing a man tell my dad, a preacher, tell my dad when I was a little guy. He said, you're letting your boys play little league baseball. You need to stop doing that. That's a sin. You're, you're letting your children be part of worldly amusements. And so uh, really just confused my dad because he had a lot of honor and respect for this man. And he told him that going, letting your kids play baseball was sin. My dad's dad, who was a homeless preacher, never went to see my dad play high school football or basketball because he thought it was a sin and he didn't want his church to be upset with him by going and watching his son. That greatly injured and wounded my father because he never was able to look in the bleachers or the stands and see his dad. All because of people in the church do not understand what sin is. They don't have a, they don't have a clue what sin is but him who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God that is in Christ Jesus and that righteousness is received it is not achieved it is a gift it is the gift of God amen I want to pray father we love you and we are so thankful that we are loved by you I am a disciple and we are disciples whom the Lord loves and we thank you that that love of God has been, not will be, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I pray today for a revelation of the grace of God that has appeared to all men unto salvation. The grace of God that teaches us not to say yes to sin, but the grace of God, actually your word says, teaches us to say no to sin. And so, Father, we thank you for that grace that empowers us to live free from the bondage of sin.
and of all of its effects. In Christ's name, Jesus' name, we pray. Everybody say it. Amen. Amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Um, as I said, you would think that with all the preaching against sin in the church that we would really know and have an understanding of what sin is because we've all been raised to be aware of sin, to resist sin, to run from sin, to overcome sin. And I honestly believe that for most of the church, the church has an unhealthy obsession with sin. And it's no wonder that most of us were raised up, and some still are, that we are more sin conscious than we are Christ conscious. And we live in a culture, church culture, where the concept of sin has been entangled in legalistic arguments as to what is right and what is wrong, what is permissible, what is not permissible, what you can do and what you cannot do. And so when many people consider the question that I ask, what is sin, then we tend to think of sin as something that we do, a verb, an action, something that we, we, we physically you know, do, and we think that that is sin. I've noticed that the church uh, categorizes sins for the most part. The church thinks of sins like adultery and homosexuality as major sins, big sins. Some of them even believe that uh, some or one of those sins is even unforgivable. Uh, and then they say that sins like unbelief, they don't even see that as a sin, but that's the greatest sin of all, is the unbelief in what Jesus came to do. They see sins like lying and so forth as not really, you know, major sins. And the truth is that sin, as defined by the Bible, means to miss. Now, how many of you heard the definition of sin means to miss the mark? Now, the, the mark part I'll talk about in a second, but that's added. But the, the Hebrew word for sin actually means an offense, and it means to miss. To miss. To miss. To miss what? Now, sin came to be, and if you look it up on Wikipedia or a dictionary, it will say sin is a transgression of a divine law. Sin in the church, therefore, has become to be a transgression of God's law. Not only the Ten Commandments, but all of His commandments, 613 of them to be exact. So, Sin in the beginning in the Word of God could not be a transgression of the law because the law didn't exist until Moses came. So when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive and Moses, you know, until he got the law, these guys, they can't transgress the law of God because there is no law of God. Are you with me? So sin in its essence cannot be simply a transgression of the law of God. Now, it came to be that when the commandments were given, when the law was given. And those that transgressed the law of God bore the penalty of their transgression. But sin in the Bible, when it first appears, the word sin is found in Genesis 4. In fact, the word sin doesn't even appear when Adam and Eve did what they did in the garden. But we know they sinned against God. But it doesn't say the word sin. The only time we see the word sin actually appear in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. And that's when God is talking to Cain who had murdered his brother Abel. And God didn't kill him. God didn't turn and chase Cain down and kill him on the spot. Why didn't he do that? He didn't do that. 
Under the law, it says if you murder, you'll, you'll die. If you kill intentionally, maliciously. But here in Genesis 4-7, this is the King James Version because it, it says something that I want you to get in, the, in their translation of it. He's, God says, if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin, first time the word sin is in the Bible right there, sin, and by the way, it's a noun. It's not a verb. Sin lieth at the door. Well, a dog can lie at the door. You can lie at the door. You understand what I'm saying? Lay down. You understand what I'm saying? So he's personifying sin as an entity, as a thing, as a noun, person, place, or thing, not an action. And if and, and unto thee shall be his, King James says, his desire. His, who's he, who is his? Sin. So God personifies sin as a person. He says that his desire and thou shalt rule over him. Isn't that something? That's a new concept of sin. Now, I've told you this, and it's a whole message. I devoted a whole message to it, and I can't talk about it this morning. I don't have the time, but sin is mentioned in the book of Romans more than any book in the New Testament. Forty-five times in the book of Romans is the word sin mentioned by the Apostle Paul. And only, four, uh, only one of those times is it a verb. Now, that may, not, that may not mean nothing to you, but it means something to God because he wrote the Bible. And that's what it is. Forty-four times sin in Romans is a noun. When John the Baptist pointed at Jesus, I've told you this over and over, and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin. He didn't say sins, plural. Jesus did not die for your sins, plural. Jesus died for sin. Him who knew no sin, not sins, became sin. Both of those words are nouns. When John pointed at him, he said, The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's a noun. It's not a verb. If you don't believe it, get your original language, the inner line in your Bible, Greek concordance, and, and you'll see that's the, that's, the, that's the case. So that shows us that we, because I want to tell you, most of the church thinks sin is a verb. Okay? So on, on my website, daleyoung.net, you can go there. I got a little blog, a little article that says sin is a noun, grace is a verb. And so you can read it in a real concise manner. Share it with people. Because I'm telling you, people don't know what sin is. The clearest definition to me, because remember sin, the word sin, if you look up the word sin that God used there, it means to cause an offense or to miss. To miss. Now you know what missing means, right? So if you're shooting at something, the target, and you don't hit the target, what did you do? You missed it. Right? You, 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 you missed it. So the Apostle Paul, knowing what sin really is, gave the clearest New Testament definition of sin, I believe, in Romans 3, 23, when he says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The New King James says fall short. It means the same thing. So if you come short, if, if you're trying to shoot an object that's 100 yards away and your arrow or your whatever weapon lands on the 50-yard line instead of the 100, how many knows you came short? You missed it. You, you, you missed it. So, so what did Paul say that we missed? For all have come short of what? The glory of what? So the definition of sin is not something you do so much as it's coming short 
of God's glory. What is the glory of God in your mind, in your life? The definition of glory just means dignity, honor, value placed by God. It, listen, it is God's standard of perfection. That's the glory of God. And so by that definition, we are all sinners. For we've all missed that level of dignity, honor, and glory, and perfection that is personified in Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? And so that's what, it, that's what we're missing. That's what it talks about. So man, listen to me now, man has a high, as, as a general rule, broad brushstroke here, but man has a highly developed sin consciousness. A spiritual inferiority complex. A sense of unworthiness that dominates him. Listen, man in general is doubt ruled and has a sense of knowledge faith that cannot truly know God. In other words, that man relates to God based on his five senses. And if his five senses, smell, touch, taste, all that, if his five senses can't pick up on God, then God is not real. That's why people say God isn't real. God doesn't exist. They're an atheist or whatever, you know. And, and the church that most of us grew up in, if we grew up in church at all, has been very strong in teaching about man's need for salvation and the power of sin. And the church, though, has fallen short to teach us about what Jesus really accomplished in his finished work on the cross and the power of his righteousness that is imparted to us as born-again believers. And so we don't know what we've been given in Christ. And, and, and listen, most of all of our hymns that most of us grew up singing in church, this, this aggravates people, but I can't help it. Most all of the hymns that I grew up singing in church, and you did if you grew up in traditional church, most of our hymns, listen, they put off our redemption until after death. All the songs were after death that's going to get better. In other words, we're going to have rest when we get to heaven. But we're not going to have rest here now, which the Bible says that, you're, that you, we're to enter into the rest now. There yet remaineth the rest. But we would sing hymns like, you know, we're, once we get over yonder, we're going to sit down and rest a little while. Y'all don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. We're going to have victory when we get to heaven. We're going to be an overcomer when we get to heaven. We're going to really be righteous when we get to heaven. But we have nothing on this side but failure disappointment and weakness and listen to me if it takes death listen now if it takes death to make me righteous then death becomes my savior and not Jesus Christ if I'm not going to be righteous and truly changed until after death then death is my savior we should be worshiping death we should be trying to get to death quick as we can so that we can be made right with God so that death can make us right. You see, the Bible says that death is the last enemy. Death is an enemy. Death came from the devil. Death came from Satan. God, listen, God does not need the devil to complete his redemptive work in you. God's going to change you before death. You won't see death. You won't taste of death. Him that is in Christ Jesus shall never see death. You say, well, you're going to physically die? Yes, but I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about a death that's more lasting, more eternal than that physical changing of garments for the Christian. Death for us is simply a changing of this outer garment to a glorified body, to this, 
this, this corruption shall put on incorruption. This mortality shall put on immortality. We're going to change suits that won't get cancer, that won't get tired, that won't get worn out, that can stand in the presence of God. Won't be nobody falling out in heaven. Won't be no falling out services. You're going to be able to stand in the presence and the glory of God because when we shall see him, we shall see him as he is. For it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But when we see him, we shall know him, for we shall be like him. Most of the church teaches their people on Sunday mornings like this that they have a sin nature, that they still have a sin nature even after they have been born again. The church in America mostly gives no distinction between the nature of a sinner and the nature of a saint. In fact, it would be foreign to most Christians to even think of themselves truly as a saint. They have been indoctrinated to say, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. And their identity is still rooted and grounded in their sinfulness because they think that their identity is based on what they do instead of what Jesus did on the cross. Don't you understand that if you have a sin nature, you're telling people that they have a devil nature. Because a sin nature is the nature of the devil. Jesus told them in John 8, 44, the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil. He said, the devil is your father. And the desires of your father you want to do. See, sin nature is Satan's nature. They, therefore, if they teach their people that you've got a sin nature, just say it like it really is. Tell them that they got the nature of the devil that they got a devil nature in them, that they still, even though you're born again, you got the devil in you. You got the nature of the devil and the lust of the devil you will do. See, they, that wouldn't go down as good in the first church of the Frigidaire. So we just say you got a sin nature. If you're reading a New International Version, now I don't say go home and throw it away or burn it, or if you got it in your lap, I'm not saying you're stupid for buying it. But I am saying it is, it is the, of all translation, it is the poorest on this subject, because if you read an NIV Bible, you, they will convince you by their translation that you have a sin nature because they very well say that. If you read it carefully, you'll see they'll actually contradict themselves from one verse to another because it says over and over you have a sin nature. No, you don't have a sin nature. The old man was crucified with Christ. They keep saying you got a sin nature, yet the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things, not will, but have passed away. It says, behold, all things have, not will have, have become new. What has passed away? What has become new? What is the new creation? It is your spirit man that has been created according to God in true righteousness, in true holiness. Ephesians 4.24. So listen, we are either in the family of God or we're in the family of Satan. You don't have one foot in the other, one in one and one in the other. Listen, there can be, you cannot have strong faith and live a victorious life with this kind of duplicity and mixed message in your head and in your heart. You can't do it. Now listen to me. Don't use your imperfections to judge the perfection of Christ in you. That is a tweetable term. Don't use your imperfections that you see in yourself to judge 
the perfection of Christ in you. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Read this with me. Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to how many men? Because why? All sin. How did we all sin? In Adam. For un Listen to this. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. In other words, if there's no speed limit sign, nobody can pull you over for speeding. There has to be a sign posted in order to get a ticket. In other words, because why? Because without a sign saying speed limit 55, there is no offense. If you were driving 105, there would be no offense unless the sign says you can't go over 55. Are you all with me? Now, don't miss 14, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I saw here that I've never seen before. Never said this before in all my years of preaching. I've never said this. This is fresh. You want this? Come back next Sunday and I'll tell you what I was going to say. No, I'm going to tell you. You want me to tell you? Nevertheless, death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, who was that him who was to come? Jesus. All right, now listen, this is the question. Why does it say in the Bible, death reigned from Adam to Moses? Now, it can't be talking about just physical death because people just have continued to die up to the present moment. But why does it say death reigned, reigned? If a, if a king is reigning, that means he's on the throne with authority and power and dominion. But it says death reigned from Adam to Moses. So death didn't reign past Moses. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, why didn't it say death reigned from Adam to Jesus? Why didn't it say even death reigned from Adam to John the Baptist? But it said death reigned from Adam to Moses. Listen to me. Because, listen, because the law is more powerful than death. Now, I know it's going to sound strange for you to hear those words, but listen to me. The law, in other words, death reigned from Adam to Moses. But when the law came, death lost its ability to reign. Because the law of God is more powerful than death. Man, if you get that, you're going to headbutt the seat in front of you. Because Romans 6 and 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So listen, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Now listen, so I said the law was more powerful than death. That's why death reigned from Adam to Moses. But death didn't reign once God gave the law. If, if, if someone could keep the law or fulfill the law, then death would no, no longer have reign over that person. Now, this, you're starting to get this now. So, in other words, the law is more powerful than death. And so if there was someone, anyone, who could keep the law, or Shad would say, fulfill the law, then death could no longer reign over him. 
if they had been any Israelite who could have kept the law without violating it, then death would have ceased to have the authority to reign over that individual. But there was none. For we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But yet there was one who fulfilled the law in completeness. He didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. And his name is Jesus. And Romans, listen, Romans 5 and 17 says, For if by one man's offense at Adam, death reigned through the one. I'm glad it don't end there, but it's got a comma. Much more. I love how Paul talks. Much more. Those, those who receive, not achieve, abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Death has lost its ability to reign in your life. Death can't reign in your life because Jesus now reigns in your life. You reign through him. Do you see that? That's why death reigned from Adam to Moses. But once the law came, the law is not evil. Paul said the law is good if somebody uses it lawfully. What is the law's purpose? To make you see that it is impossible for you to obtain righteousness by rule keeping. The only person that could ever keep the law was Jesus. That's why when God gave the commandments in stone, the law of God, God built an ark of the covenant. Come on, Indiana Jones fans. He built the ark, this golden chest, this box, and he put the ark in the box. The, the, I mean, he put the, 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 the commandments, the two tablets in the box. The law of God went into the box. Then God sealed the box with the mercy seat. And then God put two cherubims there to behold the glory and to keep the way. And then God told you don't open the box and don't nobody ever look at it again. Some hard-headed people in the Old Testament did, and I forget the number, 20,000 of them died the day that they slid that lid off. It is wrong for you to look at the commandments of God unless you're peering at it through the mercy seat where the blood has been applied. And that mercy is God's mercy. That grace is God's grace. And that redemption is God's son and his name's Jesus Christ. And it's wrong for us to behold the law unless we see it through Jesus Christ. But now I can behold the law of God without fear and condemnation because I'm not in the law. I'm not according to the law. I am no longer subject to the law. I'm in Christ Jesus. And if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Paul said, behold, all things have become new. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Jesus fulfilled, the Bible says, the righteous requirement of the law. The Bible says that in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, for what the law couldn't do because it was weak through flesh. The law itself was not weak. But man trying to keep the law with his flesh was weak. The law was weakened by man's attempt to keep it through flesh. It says what the law could not do because it was weak through flesh. God did. Whoa, I love that phrase. God did. What the law couldn't do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What flesh did he condemn sin in? The flesh of his son. And that's why there is now, therefore, no condemnation to me. Now look at the next verse, verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, where? 
in us who don't walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? I'm not going to try to fulfill it in my flesh. I'm going to fulfill it in the Spirit, which means I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. See, if you're born again, you have, as far as God looking at us, God stamps you, you've never broken the law one time. All 613 kept in full, never broken, not one day. God says that you, through his son, have fulfilled the law requirement. And therefore, since you have fulfilled the law requirement, death can't reign over you anymore. Because the law is more powerful than death. And now you reign in this life. Not when you get to heaven, but you reign right now through Jesus Christ. Because you've received the abundance of grace. You've received the free gift of the righteousness of God that's in Christ Jesus. And therefore reign. Act like kings and reign. Act like priests and walk as you're whole and undefiled before God. Walk with full confidence before the Lord. Come boldly into a throne room of grace. Not a judgment. Not of condemnation. But it's a throne room of grace. And receive help in time of need from the Lord. God wants you to have a, a confident spirit. A, 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 you walk in there boldly before him. Lord, we come to you as humble as we know how. I'm just a worm. No, 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 no. That's religion. That's not how a son comes. My children don't come and say, oh, daddy, I'm just a worm. Can I come in your house, daddy? No, no. My children come boldly into the house. Boldly to the refrigerator they go. <laughs> they don't have to ask why because it's theirs. Why is it theirs? Because it's mine. They're joint heirs with me. We got turkey, they got turkey. If I got hot dogs, they got hot dogs. I've seen my family, even my parents, and even my children at times go through tough times. We've all been there sometimes. And the, the you know, economy or job situations or finances, or you don't see how you're going to make it. You don't see how you're going to pay your mortgage payment. You don't see, you, there, there can be moments where you think, well, I may not have no place to live tomorrow. I, I may not have a job. I don't know how I'm going to overcome this. And I've looked at my children, my family. I've even said this one time to, to Jill's parents. I said, as long as I got a house, as long as there's a roof over my head and groceries in my pantry, you'll always have a place to be. You won't ever sleep out in the cold. You won't ever do without. The other day, my mom and dad was getting concerned. It was mom, and, and she was echoing some things, and the dad was saying this stuff. And, and I, had to, I had to say that to them. As long as I am alive and I got a roof over my head, I said, I got two extra bedrooms right now. As long as there is a place. I said, you and daddy don't need to worry about what tomorrow's going to bring. I mean, if it comes down to that, you'll have, a, you'll have a nice bed to sleep in, and you'll have all the groceries you can eat, and you'll have a place to be safe and secure. So stop worrying what you're worrying about. Dad was trying to figure out how long we're going to live, and he was counting the money and see if, if we live this long, then we, but if we live this long, we're going to run out. My mama rebuked my dad and said, don't, she said, don't ever show me them figures again. I don't ever want to see that again. I don't ever want to uh, know that again. She said, God has kept us all the way up to this moment, and I don't see him dropping us off nowhere now. He's been faithful right up to this moment. God has looked after you right up to this day. You ain't done without. We all got more groceries than we know how to eat them. Come on, somebody. The Lord is good. God is good. God has blessed us. God has kept us. God won't stop doing it today. He's going to be the God of tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I know it will bring God with it. Hallelujah. Glory. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't worry. And if we really are, are the family of God and not playing in here, 
won't none of our members do without. Won't nobody go hungry in here because we're not just associates. We're not just members down at the corporate complex. Grace Point is a church family. This is the family of God. And so we'll have things given. We'll, God will bless us. Somebody needs a refrigerator. Somebody in here got three refrigerators and two of them ain't even plugged in. That just means you need to give one to that man or that woman. Needs a refrigerator. Somebody needs a car. You got one you don't ever drive. That means somebody, God's blessed us. He's blessed us to be blessed, but he's blessed us to be a blessing. We don't need to listen and let the news media and the, the world forecast our hope and what we think is going to happen. I mean, all I get mostly out of the news, and that's why I quit listening to it years ago for the most part. I get all I want without even asking for it. People make sure I know. But I'm not going to receive the sphere. Somebody asked me the other day, talking about my wife knows my answer on this. There was somebody wanting to go to see this movie, something like this, and it's good, and, you know, somebody dies with this and crying. I said, I ain't going to see that. I don't care how good or how many stars it got or how many awards it gets. Now, that's fine if you want to. That, God bless you. Carry your tissues and go. I have enough sadness in my life without adding to it. <laughs> I cry enough on my own without Hollywood helping me cry. <laughs> I don't need the, I don't, mm, I get sad enough on my own. Just Dale. I don't need Hollywood helping me to be even more sad. I'm not going to go watch a sad movie. If I'm going, it's going to be because it's exciting and I'm afraid somebody's going to get shot and killed or it's going to be comedy. Or it's going to be something my grandbaby wants to see like Batman or Spider-Man saving the world or something. But it's not going to do that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Our life is a lot like a theater. You buy the ticket, pay the price, and you choose what goes in your head. You choose what affects your emotions. And most of the time, just like that movie, it ain't real. What's making you cry ain't real. What's making you afraid ain't real. It's not real. Come on now. Romans 6 and 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Now, is that true or not? Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under the law, but you're under grace. Paul got hit with it here. He said, what, They said, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? He said, Certainly not. Now, listen to me. You're going to really, it's going to stretch you, but I want to go deeper with this. Listen. By the definition of sin, a Christian cannot sin. A Christian cannot sin. And that, I'm going to read the verses in a minute because that's why you get so quiet. And that's what John said in 1 John. He said a Christian, he didn't say a Christian is hard for him to, he said they can't. And he double enunciated and said it's impossible for him to sin. They can't sin. See how quiet it gets? No preachers ever preach on that. If they do mention it, they say, well, now, Brother Dale, what that really means is that we won't practice sin. Are you insane? Everybody in here practices sin. The reason that you don't think you do is because, again, you don't know what sin is. You think sin is a verb, something you go do. And because you don't go do, you don't sin. Man, when Jesus came, this is another time. Uh, you know, uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I'm not going to have it. I can't do it in one Sunday. But I want to say this. Jesus introduced a radical change of the definition of sin when he came. 
when Jesus preached his first official sermon, if you will, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching the law. And what he did is he brought sin to a whole nother radical level because they said that, you know, adultery was you had to sleep with somebody physically in bed to be an adulterer. They said to be a murderer, you had to actually kill somebody or you're not a murderer. Jesus said, you've heard that said, but I say unto you that if he said, if you've ever lusted after a person, nobody didn't know it. You just looked with your eyes and lusted in your heart for a person. And uh, Jesus said, you're an adulterer. Wow. So now we see sin is not simply a verb, an action. Sin is an attitude or a thought that we don't even act on. Well, it ain't sin if you don't do it. You ever heard that? That ain't what Jesus introduced. Jesus said if you've ever hated anybody in your heart, you're a murderer. What's Jesus doing? He's killing everybody. For the letter killeth. The purpose of the law is to kill you from trying to live right on your own. You can't keep no rules and be justified before God and point to some rule book and say, I kept the rules. No, no. Sin is an, is an attitude. You know, the Bible, him that knoweth to do good and don't do it is, is sin. I, I hope to talk about this maybe even next Sunday or so forth, but, but sin is very personal. If I was to ask you, you know, if you had two people here and they both do the same thing, can it be possible for one of them to be sinning against God and the other one not to be sinning against God? Yet they're doing the exact same thing. Is that possible? Now, some of you don't know how to answer that. And you're the ones that I'm trying to help. And I'm not being demeaning to you. I'm Papa. I'm trying to help us. Listen, is that possible? Now, a lot of the church would say absolutely not. For God is no respecter of person. You ever heard that? God's no respect of person. What he'll do for you know, one, he'll do for the other. And then they'll say, what he'll command the one, he'll command the other. So if it's sin for me, it's sin for you, brother. You ever heard that? That's all religion and lies. Sin is a very personal thing. The reason we don't think that because we don't know what sin is. And I don't have time to go there. I'll just mention it. Maybe we can, I want to devote more time to it. I got scriptures up here, but I can just see I'm not going to make it. But Romans 14, I believe it is, Paul was talking to people that were eating meat sacrificed unto false gods or idols. Now, Paul said, I can eat that meat, and I got no problem, and I'm not sinning. And the weaker Christian who abstains from that meat, it's amazing who Paul calls his weak and who he calls his strong. In the church, we do the opposite. We, we say to brother who won't eat that meat, he's strong in the Lord. No, he's weak, Paul said. He's really the weak one. Paul said, because one eats meat, and then there's other, then the weak brother, now don't get mad. I'm not trying to talk about your diet. Eat like you want to, okay? But li I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But Paul said, and the other person only eats vegetables. That's what it says in New King James, only eats vegetables. And so he says <clears throat> that that's the weaker person because for religious reasons they refuse to eat the meat. And it's not like in the Bible they were trying to be vegetarian. They just wouldn't eat the meat because it had a stamp on it that said Dagon or some false god. And they were too holy to eat meat that had been, you know, offered uh, at the meat market to an idol. But Paul said, I can go to that meat market because they sell the best steaks and buy that meat. And I can cut that Dagon symbol off it because it's going to fry off anyway on my grill out back. And I'm going to grill that meat, and I'm going to sit down and enjoy it. And before I eat it, I'm going to give thanks unto God. And he said, whatever I thank God for, listen to me, God sanctifies it. 
I wish I had time, but if you would be thankful, instead of condemning everything and everybody, listen, if, listen, if thankfulness will sanctify a piece of raw meat, I wonder instead of condemning people, we were thankful for them, and, and wouldn't it bring a sanctification to them? Huh? We don't understand the power of that. The Bible says an unbelieving spouse is sanctified by a believing spouse. We don't understand the power of thankfulness. But sin is personal. So one brother, Paul said, now whatever you, you do, he said, I'm persuaded that in my, you know, nothing going in, that, that's not what makes a man unclean. Jesus said that. It's not what goes in a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth, out of his heart. Because <clears throat> out of the mouth, the heart will, will, will reveal itself. So Jesus says, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him. Well, you can't eat that sin. I went through that, you know. Can't eat shrimp. And, and in the Old Testament, the Jews, God's people, under the law, couldn't eat shrimp. Lobster neither. Don't dare bring out an oyster. Now, I'm not endorsing something. Some of you got strong feelings about this and that. Fine. Just don't get up and preach it as doctrine. My granddaddy one time was plowing. He was, you know, old, he was old time holding all that, but he was plowing. My grandmother would always, you know, he would, my granddaddy would kind of insist, she said, insist that he bring her, bring tea to the field, to the tractor, you know. That's, that's nice. That's sweet. You should bring your man tea if he's out mowing the yards. And don't you, baby girl? Jill, Jill's good about that. Crawford Powell thinks he takes the credit for that, but Jill was bringing me tea before Crawford ever existed. So. Or Gatorade. It's actually Gatorade, but <clears throat> whatever. Just be kind to one another. Look out for one another. But, um, and I know some of you women, you out mowing and your man's in the house. You, you, sir, carry some, carry something to drink out here. I didn't forget you, babies. I didn't forget you. But my granddaddy got down to pray one time, he said. When I was a little boy, I never saw my granddaddy all of my life. Before he died when I was around 12, 13 years old. 14 maybe, but he, uh, when I was 14. But he, uh, I never, he never drank tea. Everybody on Sunday dinner, you know, everybody had a glass of tea, but my granddaddy, water. And that's back when, you know, water was, nobody was drinking water. <laughs> my granddaddy would not have believed somebody would charge you for a bottle of water. You know, you can get it from the spigot. You know what I'm saying? He could, but my granddaddy would always drink water. I remember when I got a little bit older, I asked my grandmother one day. This was actually after my granddaddy had died. I said, why didn't my granddaddy ever drink tea? She, you know, he just didn't like tea. She said, oh, no, son. He, your granddaddy loved tea. He dearly loved it. And I said, well, I never saw him take a drink. She said, he, she said not while you were alive. He never took a drink of tea the day he died. And I said, why? Well, I don't understand that. She said, because one time he got down to pray, and, all he, and he said tea accidentally three times in his prayer. And he wasn't trying to say tea. He said he was praying to God, and he said tea three times. And he said he just took that as a personal conviction that tea had got to be way too big a deal in his life. He said, if I can't pray to God without saying tea, then tea. And he was kind of like the Apostle Paul. He said, I will be subject to no thing. Nothing will have dominion over me. And my granddaddy, without scripture, without anything, just made a personal commitment between him and his father. And he said, Lord, if I can't even talk to you without saying tea, I'm going to drink no more tea while the world stands. And my granddaddy made a covenant, commitment. Now, a lot of you make commitments and you'll be drinking tea next week. 
or whatever your commitment was, New Year's commitment, whatever it was. And by the way, God, you're forgiven and God loves you. So God says, when you come into my house, don't run your mouth, I'm paraphrasing, but don't say so much out your mouth and make these big commitments because I didn't ask you to do it. But God says, if you do make a commitment to me, I want you to keep it. Is that, is that right? So that's why my granddaddy never drank tea. He just had a heart for God that I'm not going to have anything to, to take dominion over me. I'm not going to let nothing try to rule my flesh and take charge of me. And that you say, well, tea ain't nothing. Well, won't you apply that same thing to something else that you call something? And I'm not going to name those somethings because it's, it's personal. Sin is personal. But the Bible says whatever a man does, if he doesn't do it in faith, then it's sin to him. If, if, if that man perceives a thing Paul said to be wrong, then it's wrong to that man and it's sin to that man. And if another man does it and he doesn't see it to be wrong and doesn't perceive it to be wrong, then it's not sin to him. That's why you could have two different people do the same thing and it not, you know, that's why he says over and over there, and that's an, I've got to get off of that, took too much time, but he, he says, don't judge your brother. Don't, don't judge each other. Don't judge each other based on what they allow or don't allow, what they do. And, and there are things that, I'm not saying that nothing is sin. I mean, adultery is sin, <laughs> okay? Murder is sin. There are things, but, but the other things, you know, I mean, if the Bible's not clear, then don't you try to be clear. Okay? Well, that went down like a rat sandwich. <clears throat> Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law, but you're under grace. Now, if by that definition a Christian can't sin because sin is a transgression of the law once the law came. But see, you're not under law, so therefore you can't transgress, therefore you can't sin. Do you understand that? You say, but I still sin. The same Apostle John in 1 John, he writes in chapter 2, children, I say that you sent my little children, obviously he's talking to Christians there in that chapter, that you sin not. But then he goes in chapter 4 and says that you can't sin. What is the guy, like schizo? He can't make up his mind what he believes. So in chapter 2, he's telling the Christians, my little children, I write unto you and say that you sin not. But if any man sins... We have an attorney, an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. And so he's telling you don't do it because it's not healthy for you. Sin produces death in a Christian and a non-Christian. Don't do it. Okay? You understand what I mean by that? God's not punishing you. You're punishing yourself because sin has built-in problems. Okay? Sin has problems built into it. It's just sin's not a good thing. That's why God don't want you to do it, not because it's a rule thing. Because it's a life thing. And sin brings death. Death came on the heels of sin into the world. So, 1 John 3. Well, let me just read this for you. So, Romans 10 and 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you believe? Do you, are you believing Christ for your righteousness? Then the law has nothing to do with you. You understand that? 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for righteous person." but for the lawless and the unsubordinate, the ungodly, and for sinners, the unholy, profane, and so forth and so on. So he names all this, and he said, that's who the law is for, those people, so they can see that they're lost, okay? 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, now listen to this, look at this, 1 John 3 and 9, whoever has been born of God, let me see the hands before I read the rest of it, how many of you in here have been born of God? You've been born from above. You just didn't join a church, you're born from, okay, keep your hand up real high if you ain't ashamed of it. Let God see it. Say, I'm one of yours, Father. 
All right, whoever has been born of God, that means the people with their hands up. And everybody ain't got their hand up, so I got some work to do this morning. <laughs> Gives me hope for why I'm up here. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. You can put your hand down. Okay, the Bible says, this, this ain't what Brother Dale says. This ain't my word. This ain't my opinion. This ain't Grace Point theology. This is the word of God. Whoever, that means whoever, has been born of God does not sin. Is that what your Bible says? That's what it says in my Bible. And then it explains why. His seed, capital, notice his capital, his seed. By the way, that word seed there is spermazoa. So his sperm remains in him. The little him there is us. And he cannot sin. Why, again, is answered, because he has been born of God. Now, is that what the Bible says? You don't ever hear that preached because people then want to try to give some explanation to it. But it does not say practice sin. It's nowhere in the original text of that verse. It does not appear. So you don't sin where at? You say, well, Brother Dale, I still sin. But it's not accredited to you. It's not imputed to you. And it's not accounted, attributed to you. Your sin account as a believer has a zero balance. You'll never be able to withdraw any condemnation and guilt and shame out of that account. Zero balance. Even though I sin, that's right. Well, why don't I go sin all the more? Why don't you listen to what I preach and you wouldn't ask such a dumb question? As Paul, my brother, says, certainly not. God forbid. How can you be that dumb and still walk around and breathe air? I'm in love with Jesus. I'm not a rule keeper. I don't want to do things that are contrary to my born-again spirit because I no longer have a sin nature, but I have been now made a partaker of His divine nature through Jesus Christ. So it's not my nature to sin. By the way, it's not human's nature to sin. Even lost people, it's not their nature to sin. That blows you. Listen, how are you going to prove that? Lie detector test, polygraph. What are you doing there? Simply measuring their sweat, their pulse rate, and their blood pressure. And you set them at a table and you ask them questions. And their body, no matter how smart their head is, reacts to them lying. That proves that even in the physical flesh hum human, it is not normal to lie. Your body will go, that's a lie. Your pulse rate will go, he lying. Your sweat glands will release sweat. He lying. Your body's against you. Your body was created in the image and in the likeness of God the Father. It's not your nature to sin. Don't do things that ain't normal for you. It's normal for you to live out of the divine nature. It's normal for you to live and obey the word of God. It's normal for you to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. That's what's normal. That's why it feels better when you do what's normal. And when you do what's contrary, you feel guilt and shame and condemnation, not from God, but your body's reacting to sin. You're not made for sin, baby. You're made for glory and righteousness. You don't sin and come short of the glory of God. I end with these two other verses. 1 John 5 and 1 says, 
Because I like three and nine, whoever had been born of God. That's why I ask you, have you been born of God? Then you don't sin. Where do, where, where do I not sin? In your spirit. Do you sin in your flesh? Yes. But that is not attributed, and God doesn't see you through that. And the more you realize of what you really are and what your identity really is in Christ, you will sin less. The more Christ-conscious you are, and the, least, the, more, the less you are sin-conscious. In other words, when I was so sin-conscious, guess what you'll do? You'll sin a lot. That's why most food diets don't work, because everything is about food. So they either give you cards with food's picture on it, or you think about food, or you do this, or you put a lock up the refrigerator or whatever. I mean, and the whole focus of a diet is on food, what food you should eat, what food you should avoid. Food, food, food. That's why diets fail, fail, fail. And by the way, that industry wants you to keep failing because they're going to keep coming out with a new one next year. Take these three pills, grapefruit, tablets, just go to sleep, eat what you want to in the morning, get up, and you'll be lost 10 pounds, and you can shake the fat out of the sheets, baby. These pills are so good. Remember that? Grapefruit pill. Take five of them, glass of water, and go to sleep, eat whatever you want to, and in the morning you'll be lost 10 pounds. You lost 10 pounds because that's how much come out your wallet when you bought that thing, that program. You know what I'm saying? So if you're going to be successful to change that, then you have to have something besides food that's being the focus. Sin's not your focus. I told you trying to overcome sin by talking and speaking and thinking of sin is like trying to overcome eating sweets by staring at chocolate cake every day. You're not going to be successful. You're going to give in to it because your focus is the wrong thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. You don't confess all. You confess your righteousness in him. Confess him. 1 John 5 and 1, whoever, I love the whoever's in here, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That defines who is a Christian. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is born of God? Then you're, do you believe that? And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5, this is it. For whatever, I love he even changed here and didn't go whoever, he said whatever. For whatever, if you ain't even a whoever, you, and it's, I don't even know what you are, well, you are whatever. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that not will, but has overcome the world. Our faith. See, if you've been born of God, listen to me, you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. You stand on victorious, blood-soaked ground at the cross. Who is he who overcomes the world? Verse 5. But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Stop trying to be an overcomer. Because you already are an overcomer if you're in Christ. Because he has overcome the world. And your, his victory has been accredited, deposited, imputed to our account. Stand with me, please. I just wonder if anybody receives this good news this morning. <laughs> come on, give God praise. Give him praise. Ministry team, come quickly. I hope y'all don't get tired of this. I don't get tired of saying it nor do I get tired of doing it. It is my heart. And you say, well, I heard that 50 times. Well, that just means you've been here 50 times. Thank you.
I just don't want you to ever have to drive off without prayer if you want it. So if you want prayer, it's not like my prayer is magical. I'm the only one who can pray. We don't believe none of that. We don't believe if we can muster 100 people and get them to pray about your need, then God will hear us better. All that's religious deception. God is a real good daddy. And all he does is just want his kids to trust in his goodness. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repent. And the word repent means to think differently about everything. If people would think differently about God, if they would think differently about sin. So sin is not, you know, doing something. That thing that you're doing, that somebody would say, well, you're sinning. That is like the fruit, but that's not the root. Later on, next Sunday maybe, I, I will tell you how Jesus defines sin in Luke 15. Totally different. Radically different. Because Jesus did not come to enforce a moralistic grid. But he came to show us the original problem with sin. And so, if you want prayer today for any reason. Now seriously, I love you guys. and You know, I love what I get to do. Preach the gospel. Tell people the good news about how much God loves them. I don't know why you didn't raise your hand a while ago. You might not have raised your hand for any reason. You just didn't want to raise your hand. I don't know. But can I honestly say to you that there was a lot of hands that were not raised. You might say, well, I'm a Christian. I didn't want to raise my hand. I want to play the game with you. That's okay. I still love you. But I wonder if you didn't raise your hand because you don't really know that you're born again, born from above. You're not sure. And I'm not trying to make you feel not sure. But if you're feeling not sure, then you're not sure. In that same chapter, 1 John chapter 5, he said, Now, I've written these things unto you whereby you may know that you have eternal life. See, this ain't a hope so religion. Maybe so, hope so. I'll wait and see how it turns out. Huh? No, when you're born from above, you know it. And you know what? how you know it? Not by how you feel, but by what you believe. We know. I've written these things that you'll know because I've written them to you so that you would know that you have eternal life. Not we'll have it, but you already have it. I'm not waiting to get to heaven and have it. I already have it because I'm in Christ Jesus. Amen? So if you didn't raise your hand for, for that reason, would you please right where you are become a believer in Jesus for your righteousness and that he's the only one that can get you right with God? I can't. This church can't. No one else can. No other religion can. But if you'll put 100% of your faith and trust in the works of Jesus Christ and make all your deposits into that account, then God will credit your account with 100% perfection, 100% wholeness, 100% righteousness on account of his son Jesus. And you will never again fear death. You'll never again fear anything that this world can throw against you because you've already overcome the world because you've been born of God. Amen? And I pray that today for, for those, if there's somebody, you didn't lift your hand. And please believe on Jesus. Believe him for your righteousness. And if you do that where you're standing right now, and you could have already done it in the 30 seconds I'm saying that, then I, I would love for you to at least come down and say, you know what, I, I believe on him today. I've become a believer. I've been saved today. I've, I've become a believer. That's just how simple it is. If you believe it in your heart, Romans 10 says, confess it with your mouth. Tell somebody. 
that I am a believer in Jesus. I trust him. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he was buried. And I believe he got out the tomb on the third day. And when I stand before God, and if God was to say, why should I let you in? He won't never do it. But if he was to say, why should I let you into my heaven? You're just going to point to his son, Jesus, because of him and what he did on that cross 2,000 years ago. God's going to say, right answer, come on in. <laughs> come on in. Because I ain't pointing to no sermons I've ever preached, no benevolence I've ever did or given, no good work that I've ever done. Nothing can I point to but Jesus Christ. He's the only thing worthy, only one worthy that I can point to. Say, all my confidence is in him and what he did. And I trust in that sacrifice. Man, that makes me want to kiss Jesus right in the mouth. You know what I'm talking about? So we want to pray with you if you want prayer. I'm going to dismiss the church. Hey, we'll pray with you about anything. You come down, we'll pray with you, okay? Grace Point, go and enjoy this beautiful weather, beautiful day God's given us. We love you. Uh, if you want prayer, come this way. You're dismissed. We love you. Love you, Grace Point. God bless you.